mind with the prayer of our Savior for us. And we ask that tonight, through your word, that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And we pray and ask that just as Jesus' teaching um, really such an astonishing section of Scripture and with an astonishing effect 2,000 years ago. And we pray, Lord, that it would have your intended effect upon our lives this evening as well. And we pray for this work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. John's Gospel, chapter 6. As we make our way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we pick things up in verse 22. And it begins with the words, on the following day, which ties it to the earlier events of the chapter. Jesus has the day previously fed 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children with them, but probably a, a group of people numbering between 10 and 15,000. Fed them with five loaves and two fish, glutted them, and uh, one of the great miracles of, of his public ministry. And, uh, and so uh, that's the context of what has happened. And you might remember that Jesus then uh, sent the disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee, make their way to Capernaum, and uh, he would meet them. And uh, so he sent them off. He walked on water to come to them that evening. And then not everybody that was fed... Uh, of the 5,000 and however many there were on the previous day, not all of them made the journey home. Uh, they stayed where they were, the site of the miracle. They woke up. They intended to find Jesus once again and found that He was gone. And so when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there, were no, there was no other boat there except that one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away. However, other boats came from Tiberias to where they were near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so the boats would crisscross in different angles of, of the Sea of Galilee, uh, interconnecting the cities in the same way that uh, we might have bus service or rail service or uh, a taxi and so these were water taxis essentially and uh, and so when they saw that Jesus wasn't there nor his disciples they got into the boats uh, they came to Capernaum with the purpose of seeking Jesus and when they found him on the other side of the sea and they did find him in Capernaum they said to him rabbi uh, when did you come here and so they posed the question then uh, to him and uh, evidently they'd seen the disciples leave without him, wondered how in the world he got there as well. Jesus ignores the question that they asked, and it's kind of a, uh, the, it, it's basically just saying, hey bro, what's going on? Uh, and they're just trying to start up a conversation uh, with him here, and uh, Jesus cuts through everything, the whole dynamic of what is happening here, and he then poses the question to them that they ought to have asked of him. And, and he's going to really refine their motives for why it is that they've come across the Sea of Galilee now uh, to find him. 
He said, verily, verily, I say to you that you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You're here not because of the implications of the miracle that I did. And the implication of the miracles that I did uh, is that I am the promised Jewish Messiah and I am indeed the Son of God as I've been claiming myself to be. But that truth, that knowledge of me is not what has caused you to seek me. What you want and what you were concerned about is that your meal ticket left and you want your belly filled another time, uh, uh, another time and for me to do that miracle for them. Their motivation was completely carnal in following uh, 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 Jesus here and in seeking Him. Had nothing to do with who He was uh, principally in, in, in His character, in His nature, what the, what the miracle indicated related to Him they just wanted to uh, eat again. They wanted a Messiah that would feed them and basically one that would let them live the life that they wanted to live and then keep them uh, fed and, uh, and clothed. And so he uh, makes very, very clear what their motivation is here. Now, it's good to ask ourselves tonight as we look at this in the privacy of our own heart and ask, what is our motive for following Christ? There is a motive. Everybody has a motive. But what is the supreme motive in our following Him? Now the correct answer, the correct motivation is given to us at the end of the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, Peter is going to say to Jesus, where would we go for you have the words of everlasting life? And we have come to believe that you are the Messiah and the Son of God. The motive that can stand up through the thick and thin of life, the motive that honors God in following Him, is the recognition of who He is. The promised Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, and the very Son of God. And that He is the lone source of spiritual truth. And if we were to walk away from Him, we would walk away from all spiritual truth in this world. And so that's the proper motive. Their motive is way, way down below that. They're not interested in that at all. All they're interested in is that He would be someone who would meet their, their physical needs. So I think about um, the religious environment or what, what, how all the different ways that Christianity is represented within the culture. And I think that in this, in this vein, um, it, it certainly is a warning to any leaders that would cultivate, cultivate in God's people a motivation for following Him that is carnal that is based upon a full stomach and that kind of thing, rather than in who He is, He's the source of truth, and He deserves this from us. I think about health and wealth doctrine today, the prosperity doctrine. A lot of wonderful people. God is gracious. He meets with them. They love the Lord in these churches. But it's a dangerous thing to portray God as if I have enough faith 
that He will always give me health and He will always give me wealth. Because now I can motivate, now I can produce a motivation in people that's no higher than the motivation that they have here and that Jesus rebukes. That He is just there to uh, supply me with what it is that I want Him to supply me with on the physical uh, level. And so what Christianity then becomes is it becomes just like everything else in the world. It essentially becomes the worship of self continuing in my life under the guise of worshiping God. And so this kind of thing is, is always been prevalent. And so Jesus tests our motives uh, today. Some people follow uh, Jesus um, for the pickles that He can get us out of. But if He doesn't get us out of the, the, the mess we find ourselves in, in the way that we determine He should, bye. We're gone. And these disciples will be gone before uh, all is said and done. Jesus said to them further, and the whole theme of this section is everlasting life, and He brings this up. You guys have your mind completely on the carnal, the physical, your bellies, carnal appetites, and what you should be asking me about is uh, how to have everlasting life. How it is that I supply everlasting life to mankind and will do so to you. And so he said, do not labor for, the, for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting uh, life, which the Son of Man uh, will give to you uh, because God the Father has set His seal upon Him. You shouldn't be asking me uh, about food that perishes. That shouldn't be at the front of your mind. Uh, what you should be thinking about, again, the implication of the miracle is, wow, if a guy can do what he has done, let's ask him what his view is on everlasting life and how to re receive it, to raise their minds to a, a spiritual uh, level. So they listened to this, and they said to him then, what shall we do that we may do uh, the works of uh, God? And uh, so the question that they, they pose of him here is, all right, in terms of everlasting life, they're operating under the idea, uh, and it's a common mistake, mistaken idea, and that is in terms of everlasting life, that somehow uh, it is based upon our doing. And so, all right, you're a rabbi, you've done a miracle, you talk, you're talking about everlasting life, so what do you say that we need to do in order to uh, do the works of God and have this everlasting life that you're talking about? And of course, everlasting life is not received on the basis of doing, but that was the teaching of the day, and, the, the, uh, and it is the idea that fills our country today. Yes, the average person, why are you going, if you think you're going to heaven, why do you think you're going to heaven? And, and it's like, well, I'm better than my neighbor. I've done a little more good in my life than bad, and it's always this works uh, kind of thing. And then Jesus answered their question here, and he said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he uh, sent. And so this is how everlasting life is gained by believing in him 
that is Jesus, whom He, that is the Father, has uh, sent. And so here comes this whole discussion now uh, on uh, everlasting uh, life. And so no one gets to heaven, Jesus says, on the basis of our own good works. Everlasting life is received by simply trusting in the Savior that God has provided to the world. And that Savior is Jesus. The only good work, so to speak, that a sinner can do is to confess our sin to God, ask for His forgiveness, and put our faith uh, in, in His uh, Son. And so this is the work uh, of God that uh, you believe in Him whom He has sent. Now, it's interesting, this work that Jesus talks about here, this is the work of God. It's a, the Greek word ergo, and it actually means work, and it actually means to do something. Now, Jesus is not saying uh, that our putting our faith in Him for salvation is some kind of a work that is added to His finished work upon the cross for salvation. But it does make the distinction that in order to be saved, there must be a moment in time in our life where we deliberately and purposely put our faith in Jesus Christ. I trust in You as the solution to my sin problem. I trust in You for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust in You as heaven's Savior so that I might have everlasting life. In other words, it's more than just believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing uh, that He provides uh, salvation, keeping this as a pleasant thought in my mind. There is an actually a commitment being made uh, here that does not constitute a work that gets added to the salvation. But it's more than just uh, something tumbling around in my mind. It's something that I need to do in the course of, uh, of my life. And that something is to believe in Him uh, whom He has sent. And therefore they said to Him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will uh, you do? And so uh, they uh, again come back to signs and continually the Jewish people, these are Jews, they, are, they were asking Jesus for miracles as an evidence of uh, the fact that He should be believed as the Messiah, His claims to be the Messiah, and to be the Son of God. And so what kind of a miracle are you going to do here to prove? They had a miracle the day before. If miracles alone were, was a foundation for faith, I mean, then they would have believed at least overnight Jesus, sometimes in the Gospel according to John, it's a little hard to follow uh, how far along he is in his ministry. It's estimated that Jesus is about at year two and a half of his three and a half year ministry. That means the whole land of Israel is filled with formerly blind people seeing, formerly lame people walking, uh, people that were dead now being raised to, de to life. Uh, lepers being cleansed of their leprosy. If a miracle was going to save anyone uh, in and of itself, Jesus had provided plenty of miracles as a, 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 a foundation for uh, his, his, uh, his claims. And so uh, he, he speaks to them here 
and, uh, and as they ask him, what miracle, additional miracle will you do? And, uh, and then if you're open to suggestions, our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they're talking about Moses. <laughs> you can, these people, this, this, this group is an interesting group. So what miracle are you going to do for us? And uh, if you're open to suggestions, uh, we, li- we like that bread coming from heaven thing. Uh, they want to be fed again. So they bring up, they're going to try and spiritualize it, and they bring up the fact that they're fathers, and really they're talking about Moses, and Jesus is going to correct them on that and uh, clarify it. Moses, you know, he gave us bread from heaven. Talking about the 40 years in the wilderness when God fed them with the manna. So, um, you say you're greater than Moses, so let's, let's top it and let's repeat the miracle of yesterday. And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, Moses did not give you uh, the bread from heaven. Uh, so, don't, don't be a... Moses could have no, no more brought one single uh, cornflake of manna from heaven in and of himself. Uh, God's the one that gave you, uh, 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 gave you that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from, uh, from heaven. And so Jesus now begins to speak to them uh, of the fact that uh, this, uh, the manna in the Old Testament as wonderful of a miracle as it was, and a tremendous miracle that occurred over a period of 40 years. It was all a type and a picture of a Savior that God would send into the world who would more than supply the spiritual hunger and thirst of mankind in the same way that God met the physical hunger of the children of Israel wandering uh, in, uh, in the wilderness. And uh, so, it is my Father who then gives you the true bread from heaven. Bread that is uh, spiritual bread unto everlasting life. For the bread of God uh, is He, speaking of Jesus, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That bread sustained, uh, that bread sustained physical life and then only did so uh, temporarily, that manna in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, now I'm talking about a bread, speaking of himself, that comes to satisfy not only the spiritual hungers of mankind, but then is able to give everlasting life to the partaker uh, of that bread, the partaker of him. And then they said uh, to him, Lord, give us this bread uh, always. And uh, so they're interested in it. Their mind is still thinking about the fact that, uh, thinking about physical bread. Okay, whatever you're talking about, let's get those loaves and fishes going again. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not uh, believe. And so he speaks to them here about the fact that he is the satisfaction uh, for the spiritual need within mankind, 
and, uh, and their refusal to accept him as that. So we live in a country today that is oh, probably literally hell-bent on running away from God, the God of the Bible, and from his word, and from his commandments, and so forth. I don't, I, I don't know that it's just a, a, a loud minority um, uh, within the country, or it's, it's much deeper than that. I suspect it's much deeper than that. But God has called us to serve Him in this country at this time, in this season, in this nation's history. And it is in the middle of a spiritual decline. And you see the terrible, terrible price that our country is paying for a move away from God. The consequences are always uh, enormous that is, is be, that it is paid. And you look at the statistics that are there out there today they talk about uh, the number of people that are dealing uh, with depression I mean epidemic kind of of levels the epidemic level of suicides within uh, within our country the drug addiction that is just simply uh, uh, everywhere and uh, but you you cannot tell generations of people that there is no God and there is no ultimate truth except you're going to end up exactly here. Because now you have removed from generations of people the idea that there is any ultimate meaning and purpose to life. And now you indoctrinate them into the fact that there is no ultimate meaning, there is no ultimate purpose. Where are they going to go? And then at the same time, you work to remove God and them coming into contact with God everywhere that you can within the culture. And, and it's a horrible, horrible thing that's being done, and it's why we're here, to let people know that Jesus is the one who satisfies the, the spiritual hunger and the spiritual thirst, and He's the only one that can do it. And so, in one sense, it's an absolute tragedy, so unnecessary, uh, that is going on around us, but I'll tell you, the fields white under harvest are being prepared for the message and are prepared for the message of, of what it is that Jesus is willing to do. You look at our culture and you see the suicides rate and the drug addiction and all these kind of things and, uh, that are happening. And when you look around, I mentioned it a, a number, uh, two or three weeks ago, I think on the Sunday morning, but I, if I walk through the mall or I walk anywhere, it's just like, um, where's the joy? Where's the joy? I mean, Americans used to be known for joy. And, and you'd go to Europe and they, they'd be in all those subways and everything and they're all stern and dressed in black and, and then these Americans pile on and it's like a big party and a joke and everything. I mean, in a sanctified sense, there's life coming, coming out of them because of our heritage. Europe's far more separated from their heritage than, than we are. And, uh, but today I look around and it's just like, it's like zombies just trying to get through to the next thing. Where's joy? Where is hope? You cannot take God away from people without not only paying a price in terms of financially or problems like that within a nation or, or in people's lives and the bad decisions that are made. You're going to strip them of joy. You're going to strip them of hope. And we're going to end up right, right where we are. And Jesus is the answer 
to these things. And he lets them know. Man has a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst that only I can uh, satisfy. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so he reaffirms to them of the fact that he has come into the world uh, from heaven. And he's come from heaven in order to give life to the world. So they said uh, again, Lord, give us this bread. And, and he said uh, with the hunger and thirst in verse 35, but I say, said to you uh, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no, by no means cast out. Now, um, these being Jewish people, uh, they considered themselves on the inside track as it relates to, uh, to God. They were the people that knew about God, the Gentiles didn't, and, and so forth. And Jesus said, you, if, if, uh, uh, the, the fact that you're rejecting me, the fact that you're playing this game with me, is an indication of not a problem with me. The rejection of me is, that's not your biggest problem. The rejection of me manifests the deeper problem, and that is, you don't know God the way you think you know God. And you don't have the relationship with God that you think that you have. Jesus has just put a torpedo in the side of the USS Judaism as it was practiced under the scribes and, and the Pharisees at Jesus' time and as it's mostly practiced to, to, this, uh, to this day in, in, in a rejection of Christ. He's saying, you do not know the Father if you do not know the Son. What he's saying here is absolutely revolutionary in the conversation uh, to them. And if you were of the Father, you would come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now that's a great comfort to us. No matter how sinful a person is, no matter how many years, what the sins, how shameful, how awful, no matter how many bridges we burn in life, if we will come to Jesus, we never ever have to worry about him saying, oh, we never thought you would take us up on the offer. He will never turn any way, anyone away that comes for, uh, to him for salvation, won't cast them out. Well, you say, well, well, of course. Um, maybe in the purity of your heart. But when God looks at mankind, and he looks at the kind of sin human beings are capable of. Let's just give an example of the drug cartels where you can take and not only kill a whole bunch of people in a town, but then cut off their heads and stack them at the gate of the city. Or, or uh, uh, human slavery, human pro uh, prostitution around the world and the degradation uh, of all of that. I mean, God sees how low people can go in life. And he says, even that one, they come to me, the ones that God, the, uh, the Father gives me, they'll come to me, and not one of them uh, will uh, be cast out. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, that I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. So when a person becomes a Christian, he doesn't cast us uh, uh, away, and he never loses us. Isn't that nice? So, oh man, where did I put Kyle? You know, like a Mr. Magoo trying to find a bar of soap and whatever. Anyway, where that came from, I don't know. But, but once we come to him, he's not only able to save, but he's, he's then able uh, to keep. And this is the will of, of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have uh, everlasting life and I will raise him up uh, on uh, the last uh, day. And so he, and the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They were troubled by his claims to be the Son of God and coming uh, uh, from heaven. It is interesting that, that, that when we talk about uh, Reformed theology or election, let's put it that way, election, uh, God's election involved in salvation and then uh, human responsibility, our responsibility to choose God and a uh, little bit of the mystery related to all of that. It is interesting in verses 37 uh, through 40 to notice that Jesus is all over the map on it. Not because he's confused. I mean, he talks there in, in verse 38 concerning those, uh, in verse 37, those who are saved, all that the Father gives. Verse 39, all that he has given me. Then he goes into verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have everlasting life. So if you ever have trouble in reading the Scriptures and understanding the overlap and the whatever between in salvation of God's election and of our human responsibility, Jesus doesn't get in, tie all of this down and get down into the technicalities with a scalpel and all. Both of them are true. And He communicates both of them as true. God elects. We have a responsibility uh, to believe. And then again in verse 41, they complain about his claim to, to a heavenly origin. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down uh, from uh, heaven? And so uh, they thought that they knew Jesus. They thought that they knew him uh, well, all right, we know uh, he's the son of Joseph and Nazareth and his mother. We, we know all, all of those people. How in the world can this guy with these parents that we know say that he's, he's come down from heaven? Well, clearly they didn't know um, as much about Jesus as they thought. Jesus is not the son of Joseph. Um, he's the son of Mary, uh, but he uh, was a miracle of his conception, a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Joseph had no part in it. It is funny how many people think that they are completely familiar with Jesus and then reject Him on the basis of that supposed familiarity and they know nothing about Him. You can spend your whole childhood in church and, and depending on the church that you're in, not know anything about Him and, and, and then reject Him 
not on the basis of something that is solid, but on the basis of a supposed familiarity that, uh, that we have. And this is the thing that, uh, that, uh, that they're struggling with here. And Jesus had an answer to them. And he said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. We're having a conversation, so speak up and uh, let's continue the conversation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. All it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, the torpedo, once again. If you knew the Father at all, much less how well you think you know the Father, we would not be having this discussion. You would not be resisting me on this. You would become my disciples immediately. Again, you think I'm your problem. Your problem is uh, your relationship uh, with God. And not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. He said, I can speak authoritatively concerning the Father in a way that you never could because I come from the Father and I've seen the Father. Who can represent someone better than being an eyewitness of the Father as Jesus was? So they're pushing back at him and he's not budging not one inch in terms of, of who and what he is. And verily, verily, I say to you, that he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's as clear as John 3.16. He just brings the offer in front of them one more time. Salvation, a relationship with God, is on the basis of faith or a, a trusting in Jesus for that everlasting life. He said, I'm the bread of life, and your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. You want physical bread from me? You want another meal from, from me? But it's not the answer to your life. I can feed you every day with, from five loaves and two fishes, and you're still going to die. It will not solve your greatest problem, and that is how to get into heaven after this life, how to have everlasting uh, life. Yes, the manna was a great miracle. Jesus is not minimizing it, not one single bit. But it's nothing like the miracle that Jesus offers mankind in order to uh, partake of Him and be saved. And this is the bread, speaking of Himself, which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Well, the Jews are listening to this. And Jesus talking about, um, you know, eating his body, drinking his blood, and, and so forth. They're giving his flesh and so forth. And they know at least this much about the Old Testament that it was forbidden under the law of Moses to drink blood and to partake of, uh, of flesh in, in, in that way. And so they quarreled among themselves. He's got them uh, turned in, into knots here. How can this man give us his flesh uh, to eat? 
Again, Jesus is speaking to them in a, uh, in a symbolic way, using the imagery from their history. When you partake of a piece of bread, and you put that in your mouth, and you chew it, and you swallow it, eating bread is to internalize the bread. And it isn't merely to internalize the bread, but what we have eaten now will affect every part of our body by virtue of being introduced into our bodies. And this is what happens when a person is born again by the Holy Spirit. We put our faith in Jesus Christ, and then we partake of Him. Jesus comes into uh, our lives. We eat of His body, so to speak, and the imagery that He uses here. And then the Holy Spirit comes into our life and now influences our entire bodies or our entire lives, brings change, nourishment, all of these things to us. And He's speaking with this this kind of, of imagery. He is likening uh, the spiritual birth to the partaking of, of bread in this way. And they think he's talking about them eating his flesh. And Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, there is no life in you. For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Jesus, we eat and his, his body, we drink his blood by believing in him, and then he comes into our lives. And brings that change. It's what he's talking about. And then not only as we believe in him, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. Now Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have everlasting life and he'll raise us up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, spiritual food, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. Uh, he who eats this bread will live forever. I'm offering you a greater miracle to occur in your life than the 40-year miracle that God the Father did for the children of Israel in the wilderness, which they are calling upon Jesus to reenact as kind of the greatest thing that God can do in a human life, and that is to satisfy our physical appetites. He said, no, there's something way, way bigger and better than that, and that is to be born again, have me come into your life like bread and, 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 and like blood, and then be born again by the Holy Spirit, and your life changed. My life uh, coming into your life. And these things he said in the synagogue as he uh, taught uh, in Capernaum. And so, it, really remarkable what it is that he has uh, declared to them. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard what he was saying here, they said, this is a hard saying. Uh, who can uh, understand it? And so, uh, 
they looked at what he was saying here and their response was this is hard and uh, not so much that what he was saying was hard to understand as it was hard to uh, accept they understood what he was saying about himself and about salvation they just didn't want to accept it so when they say who can understand it that word understand means to uh, hear with appreciation or, or to hear uh, with acceptance so they have their own ideas about what the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to do and uh, uh, and and Jesus is not fitting into their mold we just wanted a Messiah that would keep us fed and clothed and a roof over our head and then just allow us to live uh, life however we want without making any spiritual demands uh, upon us. So they had a choice to either hold on to their views of the Messiah or to reorient their views to the Messiah himself, to Jesus as as he has uh, spoken uh, to them. And when Jesus knew in himself that the disciples complained. These, this group that had uh, been fed the day before complained about this. He said to them, does this offend you? And so he knew that what he had said to them uh, was an offense uh, to them. And so he confronts them related to that. Now it is important, they're, they're described here as being disciples. And disciple, the, the term disciple is used in a variety of ways uh, in, in the New Testament. Uh, disciples refer to uh, like the apostles they refer to somebody who has uh, uh, deeply is deeply and committed to being a follower of Jesus Christ a disciple but a disciple was a learner it also referred to people who had never made that commitment but they wanted to learn about Jesus it would be kind of like the person who doesn't know Jesus but they come into a church because they want to know more about God and more know more about him through the Bible so in a sense they're a disciple but they haven't been born again see here they're referred to as disciples but they're not born again that's the whole that's the whole issue that's going on here and so these people are not not born again at uh, all here, but they are following him in the, however carnal the motivation here uh, is, is on, on their part. And so, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was uh, before? And so he spoke to them of his coming ascension into the glory of heaven. Uh, 40 days after his death, burial, and uh, his resurrection. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and if they uh, spoke to them about that, in other words, if they were offended as, at his claim to have come uh, down from heaven, there in verse 41, then what would they do if they should see him ascend back into heaven, which Jesus would do? So Jesus is not backing down on his witness and his testimony to the fact of of his uh, heavenly origin. He builds upon it and he declares that his future ascension into heaven will be a testimony of the pleasure of heaven to all that he said, all that he taught, and and all that he uh, did. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, I offend you, but one day you will find out that I am not an offense in heaven. Not one thing I have told you, not one thing I have done is an offense to heaven. 
So think about that in terms of what you're being offended by, in terms of what I have uh, told you. Because heaven's not going to change. You're going to need to change on that, uh, that issue. And if the, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits uh, nothing. And so here he goes back to their question of, of uh, verse 28. They're still wanting a salvation that is based upon human effort, based upon uh, 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 doing. And uh, he tells them that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives everlasting life to those who uh, believe. Again, he's not backing down in any way uh, from, from his teaching. He does not change his message because people are offended by it. Uh, you can change your message if people are offended by it if your message is not the truth and you don't care about the truth. But Jesus' message was the truth and He cares about the truth. He cannot uh, deny Himself. He cannot uh, change anything. It has to land where it lands. And then people are going to do with that whatever they choose. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. That is, if they would just accept what he was saying uh, and then put their faith in him uh, for salvation, they would discover the spiritual power of what it was that he was saying. And it's like for us, you know, we become Christians, we experience the spiritual birth, we know that something uh, real and supernatural has happened between us and, and God, and, but it's like the Bible says, like the Lord says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, we can't get another person to understand. We can't put adequately into words what He will do in your life. Just do what Jesus tells you to do, and everything that He has said will happen in your life. And that's the choice that they had. If they wanted a true verification of whether Jesus was pulling their leg or He really was who He said, all they needed to do was do what He was telling them to do, believe in Him, experience a spiritual birth, and all of it would be confirmed. But they didn't want to do that. Again, they didn't want a Messiah or a, a Savior uh, uh, like that. And then in verse 64, and there are some of you, uh, but there are some of you who do not believe. And so this is a, an issue of the will. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, uh, who they were who did not believe and who would uh, betray him. And therefore he said, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless they have been granted to him uh, by uh, my Father. And so, uh, again, Jesus reveals that their original motivation for coming to Him was for bread. They weren't there because they were being drawn by the Father. They had no interest in being drawn by the Father to what, who and what Jesus was and what He is. Their motives were uh, selfish, not spiritual, and Jesus confronts them uh, with that. When, when, when God the Father is at work in a human life, in bringing them to a faith in Jesus for that everlasting life, they will genuinely and wholeheartedly commit their lives to uh, Jesus. And so, uh, again, their problem is deeper than they understand. They think they have a problem 
with Jesus, but their problem is with uh, the Father. They don't know the Father, and uh, they're not uh, in interested in the Father leading them to salvation uh, in, in the Son. And then from that time, uh, many of his disciples, this great crowd that had come uh, and, and here Jesus is very much at the peak of his popularity and his ministry. Many of the disciples that had made the journey now and to hunt him out, uh, down, they went back and they walked with him uh, uh, no more. And so that many is worth circling. And again, because he didn't fit into what they wanted the Messiah to be, so they walked away. No thank you, Jesus. Um, uh, uh, I have my own ideas about uh, what God is like. I have my own ideas about uh, what is required for salvation. What you're saying doesn't match that. And, uh, and so, uh, goodbye. They turned on their heels and they abandoned him, went back to their former lives. So here's Jesus. He begins a sermon with probably thousands of people in the audience. And by the time he's done with this sermon, only the disciples are standing in front of him. Because the crowd didn't want truth. They were there for all other kinds of motives, but not for the truth that Jesus spoke about, about salvation and, and who he was. And so how to go from a church of thousands uh, to twelve in one sermon. Uh, by, by Jesus. And so, uh, here, it, 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 the way that that can happen is just simply telling the truth to people, even to disciples, about the full demands that Jesus makes upon His disciples. Not caving to the carnal appetites that even disciples will bring into a church and, and as an influence, where they want it to be more about their, their physical and emotional uh, needs rather than their spiritual needs, this kind of, uh, of thing that goes on. And uh, they're determined uh, uh, that uh, they will have that and uh, they will turn uh, on the truth. The truth isn't sufficient for them. If it's not about, uh, it, it has to be about bellies and, and it can't be about uh, e uh, everlasting life. The problem is, is that God gets to run His kingdom the way that He wants to run His kingdom. And He gets to run a church the way that He wants to run a church. It is so easy for a church to be overrun by carnality. And that is when there starts to be the caving related to the truth, these fundamentals related to Christ and salvation to accommodate all of these varied views of people, of this mixed multitude, and you might as well set the church on fire uh, in, in terms of the difficulty it will be for turning that particular group back. Jesus wasn't going to allow that to get any kind of traction um, uh, at, at all here. And so uh, many of them uh, uh, went back and they walked with Him uh, no more. And so there's something very, very interesting here that Jesus does. And... Uh, and it's very, very needed. He deliberately tested the commitment of these disciples, the genuineness of their commitment to Him with doctrine, with truth, with teaching. 
And so the crowds that were following him at that time, they're huge, they're astonishingly huge. But a crowd isn't always what a crowd appears to be. Some were following him for miracles, some were following him for food, some were following him for deliverance from uh, demon possession, some of them just for the excitement and all of these things. And as soon as he began to lay down doctrine, as soon as he begins to teach absolute truths about who he is and what he's come uh, uh, to do, talking about his heavenly origin, talking about the fact that salvation is found in him and him alone, talking about uh, his deity, talking about uh, sanctification, the demands of the Christian uh, life, the life that God calls us to, and his words cut right through that crowd and divided the false disciples from the true disciples. And as we'll see in just a moment, the true those who came to Christ because God the Father had uh, drawn them, uh, those who had come for those kind of reasons that, that they stayed. But the false, all of these other motives, all of this, I mean my, all of this, I want to go to a church where I can continue uh, to uh, 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 worship myself under the guise of worshiping God. They all just left and, and they walked. It is interesting, and I think it's important, and it's one of the reasons that God calls upon uh, churches and upon pastors to teach the Word and to teach the whole counsel of God is because it has a way of sifting this particular group out. And, and it's the same thing that Jesus does here. The truth tests the actual motivation and commitment to God uh, of the congregation or anybody uh, that that is is visiting, and so here is these uh, these Christians that only want things, uh, uh, want all of this on their terms, and the doctrine exposed them to be um, false, uh, to be false disciples, and they uh, abandoned uh, him. You think about how many denominations, liberal denominations, for the most part in. Uh, the United States of America no longer hold to the virgin birth, no longer hold to um, his deity, uh, no longer, uh, some of them don't hold to his miracles, so forth, all of these things ab about him. And it's all uh, happens as an accommodation to this group of people. And then what happens is there's no life left in the congregation. And, and so uh, here they get tested uh, their commitment is tested by the Word of God, and it is so important. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, um, on Sunday morning in the book of Revelation, talking about Gehenna. Now, you sit where you sit, and you look at me during the sermon, more or less. But I'm not blind up here. I see you as well as you can see me. And I see the reaction in the congregation. I see the heads go down. You teach on the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father by me. And you see the heads go down. You see Christians get antsy in their seat. You see people get up and walk out. And what is happening is the disciple, the, the commitment to Christ 
is being tested by the truth. And that is going on all of the time. And it needs to be. Is there anything that the Bible teaches about Jesus or any truth in the Bible that you don't accept? That you have fashioned, well, I like most of what he says, but on this issue in terms of the fact that he is the Son of God, I've got my own ideas. You don't get to do that. Nobody gets to do that. Uh, it, what it does is, if, what, if, if I've gone in that direction, then the Word of God has tested my motives for why I follow God and found them wanting. That I want God as long as He's not this and as long as He is this. Well, who's God in the relationship? Well, I'm God in the relationship. And so that testing is always going on. And it's always dividing and separating, and it's important that it, that it does. And so I, I, for me, one thing that happened to me, I mean, when I became a Christian, it was like, uh, I was, I've never been uh, terribly impressed with myself. But by the time I reached that place in life, I was really not impressed with myself. And so when I come upon the Bible and I begin to learn about Him and I'm, I'm saved and I'm born again and, and uh, beginning to learn about what God is like and what Christ is, is like, I don't, have, I don't have any problem with that. But I, I don't understand why a person would become a Christian and then try to change the whole thing. I can't. I've walked with, with this God since 1980. I haven't found a flaw in Him yet. I have not found a flaw in His logic, in His wisdom, in His nature, in anything about Him. He is exactly as dis described in the Scriptures, and He's perfect in that, that regard. And so, doctrine tests us. And it's always separating, and it's always dividing the true disciple from the, the false disciple. And then Jesus said to the twelve, who he was left with, the apostles, and he said to them, do you want to go away uh, also? One of the most amazing pictures of vulnerability God making himself vulnerable in all of the scriptures. Are you going to walk away as well? Because what I have said is the truth. And it doesn't change. But you will have to make up your own decision about what you're going to, to do with it. But this is the truth. And if you don't want to accept it about who I am and, and what I've come to do, then are you going to walk away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Maybe indicating that he thought about it. <laughs> Sometimes you can get in difficult things. Lord, where are we going to go? 
I've checked it out. I've seen enough that's going on in the, in the world and all these things. You have the words of everlasting life. If I leave you, I leave spiritual truth. I cannot live without spiritual truth and without meaning and without purpose. That's the thing that brought me to the Lord. Some people come, they become Christians, commit their life to the Lord because of their past sin and they want to be freed, forgiven and freed from the guilt of it. I had plenty of sin and plenty of motivation to be in that category, but my need was more urgent than that in just the way that I'm made. I couldn't live any longer without meaning and without purpose and without real truth existing in the world. And that's what brought me to Christ. Now, this doesn't frighten me at all about Him. I want His truth. Who's telling the truth in the world you live in today? Who's telling the truth in that silly little noggin of ours? Our brains. No, he's telling the truth. He said, Lord, I, we can't leave you. It would be to forsake truth, and I can't, we can't live without truth. And also we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, as you've said, and that you're the Son of the living God. You are divine, and you are God the Son. And Jesus answered them, and this is a tremendous confession of Peter concerning Jesus on behalf of all of the, uh, the disciples. But as wonderful as it is, it is incorrect in one regard. And that when, he said, when uh, Peter uses all of these plural pronouns, we, 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 and in speaking of the twelve, uh, Jesus knew that there was one of the twelve that wasn't on board with all of this. And it was Judas Iscariot. And so he answered them and said, did I, not, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil, out of the influence of the devil? And of course, Judas would betray uh, him as he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, uh, being uh, one of the twelve. And so... This beautiful, beautiful chapter. The, I think it's one of the most misunderstood or just kind of overlooked sections of the entire gospel and really uh, of the entire uh, Bible. And so what we learn about everlasting life that, that, he, that He offers, it's received by faith. It's received as a gift. And, and we're not to demand our own personal miracles of God as a foundation for our uh, faith in Him. Our faith is to be based upon something far more stable than any miracle we could demand of God, and that is based upon the Word of God and His promises. And then when we do, we're going to experience a spiritual satisfaction uh, of knowing that we are now engaged in what we have been uh, created for, this spiritual birth. Here it is, satisfied. I'm no longer looking any longer because I have come into contact and experienced the truth. And then we're to rest in the confidence that God, is, Jesus, is not only able to save, but He's able to keep us and to one day deliver us into the glory uh, of heaven. And so the rea reality of our commitment to Jesus, of our salvation, will be e exhibited in our brace, uh, embrace of or adherence to His words, all of them, uh, however hard they might be for us to understand. 
And that message that he spoke to this group is as needed and, uh, today and as timeless today as ever it was. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer and a closing worship song. As we stand, uh, if you sit